Welcome to another edition of What the Cross Means to Me devotional program. This is your host, Rob Holt, coming to you from the KKXX Studios, Life Radio, Chico 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is good to be with you as we contemplate fresh perspectives on the meaning of the cross. I am not a theologian, but have been a photographer over 30 years. And if a picture tells a thousand words, then yes, I guess you could say I preach to the glory of our Creator by capturing and sharing what the Creator has created. My mission is to share the gospel through my imagery, the spoken word, and the written word. This radio program fulfills the spoken part, and the imagery utilized for this devotional are of a singular cross on a lonely hill, shot over a two-year period. The written word for this program is from a book I published about that cross collection. It matches 30 cross images with 30 original essays from a wide spectrum of Christian leaders sharing their insights on the cross. This book shares the same name as the program, What the Cross Means to Me, by Harvest House Publishers. Each week, we read one of the essays and ponder the wider meaning of the cross through the lens of Scripture. This week's entry is really a poem called The Cross of Christ by St. Augustine of Hippo, who was an early church bishop and theologian. St. Augustine, often referred to as St. Augustine of Hippo, whose original Latin name is Aurelius Augustinus, who lived from 354 to 430. The area he was from was known as the Hippo Regius, now Anaba in Algeria. He was Bishop of Hippo from 396 to his death, one of the Latin Church Fathers of the Church, and perhaps most significant Christian thinker after St. Paul. And Augustine's adaption of classical thought to Christian teaching created a theological system of great power and lasting influence. His numerous written works, the most important of which are Confessions, 400, The City of God, 413 to 426, shaped the practice of biblical exegesis, and helped lay the foundation for much of medieval and modern Christian thought. Said more simply, his extensive short quotes and lengthy writing shaped what Christianity in all of its branches has evolved to become today. In Roman Catholicism and Orthodoxy, he is formally recognized as a doctor of the Church. And with that, let's start the poem by St. Augustine. As they were looking on, So we too gaze on his wounds as he hangs. We see his blood as he dies. We see the price offered by the Redeemer. Touch the scars of his resurrection. He bows his head as if to kiss you. His heart is made bare open, as it were in love to you. His arms are extended that he may embrace you. His whole body is displayed for your redemption. Ponder how great these things are. Let all this rightly be weighed in your mind as he was once fixed to the cross in every part of his body for you, so he may now be fixed in every part of your soul. That ends the poem, Cross of Christ by St. Augustine of Hippo. There's a poem following this poem by Augustus M. Artoblati, which says, Nothing in my hand I bring, Simply to thy cross I cling. There are many who believe the cross is a bridge from death to life, 
from our mortal bodies for new eternal bodies in heaven. Or in the light of this quote, the cross is a type of a life raft, able to ferry us across as we cling to it, cross the river of death to the shore of the promised land, and onto the light and joy found in God's presence. May we never lose grip of the cross, no matter how hard the currents, rapids, and undertow pull on us. Now, the photo accompanying the essay is called The Breakthrough. It is an image from the early days of my capturing the cross collection, back when the entire hillside was covered in grass. But it would be very hard for someone to notice it if they were not looking for it. This is because I am sitting in the grass with the tripod as low as it could go and shooting up to the sky. Meaning, if one looks at this image, they see that the cross is about 90%, 95% in front of a sky, all sky. With just some tips of the grass, or some might say, hey, sticking out above the bottom of the image. The reason I am shooting up towards the sky is because there is a dramatic and breathtaking opening in between the deep and defined cumulus clouds that you usually see in summertime. The opening of the clouds not only lets a shaft of golden rays rest on the cross, but it opens a window of beautiful and bold blue sky, a calming space in the midst of storm clouds. It is as if God is giving us a glimpse into the peace of heaven contrasted from the turbulence of mortal life. After the power, this is the highest sold image in the cross collection. When I asked the buyer why this image, many respond that it reminds them of a previous breakthrough God led them through, or that they always want to keep in mind breakthroughs in their life. And we should always keep in mind the premise, principle, and promise that the cross of Christ provides to lead us through our breakthrough. Now, why the title? Why did I pick that name for it? Well, in Micah 2.13, it says, He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. To me, this means that no matter what gates, obstacle, or roadblock placed in front of us, the power of the cross of Christ engenders faith to overcome it, similar to Romans 8.28. I also like what it says in Matthew 13.43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their kingdom of their father who has ears to hear let him hear huh i can interpret this image of how a christian should be so joyful and full of light that the dark clouds cannot contain it and the christian directing or channeling their overflowing light to the cross like this image and also illuminated a path to eternal life in heaven and even though it's a bit wordy i love what the prophet says in isaiah 60, 1 through 5. For behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, the kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes round about and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons will come from afar, and your daughters will be carried in their arms. Then you will see and be radiant, and your heart will overflow with joy. Breakthrough in the context of, of the salvation that results 
in a person being born again is the verb of that person being redeemed, which refers to the work of Christ on our behalf, in that he paid the debt, or from another perspective, ransomed us at the price of his own life, securing our deliverance from the bondage and condemnation of sin. In this image, the setting sun is creating a clearing in the storm clouds, and to me, there is a daily opportunity with the passing of each day, with the passing of each sunset, to have our sins cleansed and to be redeemed today. Now, getting back to the poem, it starts by referring to those who actually witnessed Jesus make the ultimate sacrifice for them in person, and not just for them, but for all of us. And some accounts show a very sanitized version of Jesus on the cross. Yes, they show some blood from the crown area of his head, where the crown was was pushed in, you know, his knees, his hands, his feet, and of course, where the spear pierced his side. But the Bible tells of a much more gruesome scene that the original witnesses saw that day. I do sympathize as no matter how accurate an artist tries, he can never adequately recreate how Jesus looked on the cross. And if they did, I feel that the art would be unsellable. Why? Because it says in Isaiah 52:14 that just as there were many who were appalled looking at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness. In another translation it says, he no longer looked like a human man, which means you could not be able to tell that he was, he was human or that he ever was human. Let that sink in a bit. As it says in various parts of the Psalms, Selah, Jesus was tortured and beaten beyond recognition. Selah. With this picture, perspective, and paradigm in mind, let us ponder who was actually at Golgotha and watched who they knew to be Jesus, even though he was unrecognizable, die. Well, sometimes the most obvious are the most easily forgotten. The thieves, or some might call them the two criminals. It is my opinion that they were not as beaten and tortured as Jesus was, but they were dying. And extreme situations like this bring out the best or the worst out of people. As we know, one cursed and mocked Jesus. His quote is recorded in Luke twenty-three thirty-seven, when he said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Maybe I'm not very open-minded, but I don't think that was a very wise choice. The other criminal called out the mocker and spoke up in defense of Jesus. He too is being crucified with Christ. Tradition refers to him as Dismas, but he's also known as the good thief. After the bad thief mocks Christ, the good thief says, Have you no fear of God? For you are subject to the same condemnation, and indeed we have been condemned justly. For the sentence we received corresponds to our crimes. But this man has done nothing criminal. Luke 23, 40-41. It reminds me of a quote from another saint, Saint Faustina, who speaks of the good thief in her diary by saying, See what grace and reflection made out of the greatest criminal? He who is dying has much love. Remember me when you are in paradise. Heartfelt repentance immediately transforms the soul, 387 A.D. 
Now, the good thief admits his sin, accepts his suffering, and thus opens his heart to the transformative power of Christ. He does not ask Jesus to take him down from the cross. He knows that the life he lived on earth deserves death. Still, he says, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Luke 23, 42. And though the good thief only asked to be remembered, Jesus responds, Amen. I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, the bad thief, on the other hand, doesn't acknowledge his guilt or the fact that he deserves death. He wants to be taken down from the cross so that he can go on living life as he had been, as a criminal. Therefore, he doesn't receive paradise. But the bad thief isn't the only one who deserves death. Every one of us has sinned and thus deserves eternal separation from God. But in his mercy, God made man to become, to set things right. We just have to follow in the footsteps of the good thief, acknowledge our sinfulness, and turn to Jesus. Sometimes, like the bad thief, we wish to be taken down from our cross, frustrated with what we're suffering. Like the bad thief, we even question Jesus' divinity, wondering, why doesn't he remove this suffering? But in this life, being taken down from the cross is not the answer. Jesus endured it. The good thief endured it. So we too need to endure it, knowing that we deserve worse. And if we persevere, we can place our hope in something better than merely being freed from suffering. We can look forward to receiving the fullness of the kingdom of heaven in our hearts, here on earth, and being with God forever in paradise. Now there are others that mocked him, the religious leaders that twisted the whole process to ensure the Romans would crucify Jesus. They sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. These perspectives provide fresh insights as to why the religious leaders, especially the Pharisees, would accept nothing less than a crucifixion. Pilate offered many alternatives to crucifixion, and I've often wondered why the Jewish leaders would not be willing to negotiate this point with the governing force occupying their land. The religious leaders wanted the followers shut down, meaning they, the disciples, who had the ability to share the message of Christ firsthand, had to be neutralized. The leaders knew if their rabbi, their leader, Jesus, was stigmatized by being crucified, then no one would want to be associated with any of them. The hope was that the disciples would be shamed and stigmatized through the association with the crucified Jesus. As Caiaphas told Pilate, our law forbids capital punishment. When Pilate asked why they don't just deal with Jesus in their own way, we know that that was not a truthful statement as the Hebrew law allows for stoning in certain circumstances. In fact, they tried it on Jesus once, or they began trying, but Jesus slipped out of their presence. There was many ways that the Jews could have dealt with Jesus, but this was as much political as it was a commercial motivation. As the followers of Christ were growing in number, being baptized by John the Baptist and other disciples, less people were needing the religious leaders. And moreover, the people would need to, on a regular basis, purchase a sacrifice, whether it be a lamb or a pair of doves. And those purchases were starting to lessen. 
The priests not only made a lot of money in this system, they had an endless supply of free food. And the followers of Jesus just kept growing. The arrival of Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday, in which the Bible says the entire city turned out to cheer and praise Jesus, started Jesus entering a final straw phase for the Pharisees. They not only wanted Jesus gone, they wanted a stigma associated with Jesus, such that anyone following the teaching or theology of Jesus would also be stigmatized across society and their culture. Until I read this essay, I had not really thought of this aspect of why the religious leaders would accept nothing less than crucifixion and a political assassination of the character of Jesus. And since the Romans were the ones that the religious leaders used to kill Jesus, there were Romans there at the cross as well. All four evangelists speak to the presence of soldiers, some of them also mocking Jesus. They offered him wine, vinegar, and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And yet Matthew, Mark, and Luke draw special attention to the centurion in charge of carrying out the crucifixion. And they gave some account of how he was impressed in the presence of the crucified. According to Mark 15.39, he said, Surely this man is the Son of God. Huh, so who else do we see gazing on the dying Jesus? It is reported that four women were mentioned as being present at the crucifixion. In John, we see two pairs, the unnamed woman, the mother of the Lord, and her sister, and the two women who were named Mary of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. In John 19.15, it says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sisters, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. As Luke records, there are many other women, but these stand prominently out as having been most closely associated with him. Luke 23.27 says, A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And later in verse 49 it says, But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him out of Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. John also tells us that the disciples were also there, but it seems most of them were standing in stunned disbelief because nothing is reported to have been said by them. That said, John comments on his own presence, referring to it, and in doing so, that he may record Christ's committal of his mother to John's care. In John 19, 26 and 27, it says, When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. John 19. Okay, now let's back up a bit. Standing back and gazing out upon that mixed multitude, we notice two dying criminals, the soldiers, the centurion, the chief priest, members of the Sanhedrin, group of women followers, his own disciples, and in addition to these were vast multitudes of people from the surrounding countryside. All sorts and conditions of people are gathered to the cross. Representative crowds, the whole scene being a picture and a prophecy of how through all the centuries, every sort and condition would be gathered to the uplifted cross of the Son of Man, the sacrificial Lamb of God. In this poem, St. Augustine then adds to the witnesses by saying, So we too gaze on his wounds, 
as he hangs. We see his blood as he dies. I have often encouraged across many episodes to do more than just read the crucifixion account, but to use your imagination to visualize as best you can all the scenes of the crucifixion or one of them and focus deeply on that and to hear Jesus say things and ponder its meaning like when he said, I thirst, or to ponder why in excruciating pain Jesus is more concerned about the internal well-being of those that caused him such pain when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And to think about the deep despair of abandonment when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the universal application of his final phrase, It is finished, as you visualize his soul passing off of that cross. In this way, we can resonate with St. Augustine's next sentence. We see his blood as he dies. We see the price offered by the Redeemer touch the scars of his resurrection, the last of which makes all the difference. As many scholars have confirmed that there was a man named Jesus, and we have historical accounts of his execution and crucifixion, but the resurrection, that is a matter of faith. Faith backed up by the wounds in his feet and wrist and the piercing in his side that tells us he was actually raised from the dead. Just ask Thomas the effect of seeing and touching those wounds and what that meant to him. Then St. Augustine takes a turn in, the, in focus in the poem from what happened, from what the actual witnesses saw, and us visualizing what happened that afternoon and what can be learned from each scene. Now, St. Augustine talks artistically about what it all means from his perspectives when he continues, He bows his head as if to kiss you. His heart is made bare open, as it were, in love to you. His arms are extended that he may embrace you. This verbiage, in my opinion, is not just to add rosy filters on the story. We have several accounts when Jesus was being tortured and taken down a slow path to death that he more concerned he was more concerned about others, especially their eternal destination, than his own pain and anguish. So the words can have a special meaning to me and to all of us. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane worked through his decision to go through this sacrifice. Jesus had the choice and he chose to go through the passion of the cross for us. I contend because of his love for you. And if Jesus, in the midst of agony, anguish, and despair, went out of his way to care for those, praying for those who caused so much pain, how much more for you who asked for his forgiveness and who are striving to be his follower? As I went through in detail in episode 25, the Let the Hammer Ring devotional, Jesus took upon himself all the sinful and hurtful actions, not only that were ever committed, but all the hurtful actions ever suffered by the victims of those actions. Jesus not only knows the pain and unbalanced and unstable mindset of those committing the egregious sins, but he knows what it feels like to be on the receiving end of these sins. Jesus on the cross had all the most vile actions and sin put in and on him. So believe me when I say he knows 
whatever level of pain, hurt you're going through and is affecting you right now. And just like a mother with a child that fell off a bike will pick the child up and with a hug and a kiss say, I got you, I will care for you, and I will heal you because I love you. Then it is about acceptance because some people, for whatever reason, hold on to their painful memories. I suggest you let go of all your family hurts. Forgive one another. Breathe in the healing of God. Let go of all your doubts. Exhale all of it out and believe in the love Jesus has for you. Let go of anything that prevents you from allowing Jesus to fully envelop you in his unconditional love. St. Augustine ends his poem with, Ponder how great these things are. Let this be rightly weighed in your mind. As he was once fixed to the cross in every part of his body for you, so he may now be fixed in every part of your soul. This perspective he is leading us to is exactly why, in so many episodes, I suggest we make time to meditate on the crucifixion scene. It is not just about what he did for us, which most times is simply unfathomable and incalculable, but what effect it should make in our life. Once we really understand the magnitude of the sacrifice Jesus made for us, do we simply live on as before? Allow an analogy, like every battery, in order to work as intended, has to have both opposing polarities, meaning positive and negative, or in this analogy, in and out, like a breath going in and out. One can say, breath in the Spirit of God with each breath, and then breathe out all of your sin, hurt, and doubt back to God. We breathe in what Jesus did for us, and we breathe out of his example and how we live. If you consider yourself a Christian, then you identify as a follower of Christ, which infers we are to emulate his life and actions, in our life and actions. As he gave his all for others, we too are called to give our all to others. And to who? Jesus said, when you've done this for the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Good examples would be Billy Graham, St. Teresa of Calcutta, St. Dr. Moscati of Italy, St. John Newman from Pennsylvania. They all left it out on the field for others. We are called to pick up our cross daily. What does that mean to you? What is your cross? And does this phrase or cliche mean to carry it as, let's say, from the Praetorium to Golgotha only? Or to be willing to go all the way and to be willing to give your all? St. Anthony of Padua said, Only by looking at themselves in the mirror of the cross can people come to understand what is their worth. Am I saying you should be expecting or should be ready to be killed for your faith? Well, hundreds if not thousands of saints, beautified because of martyrdom, not miracles, and many missionaries who are martyred, tell us that death for our faith is not something just to be ready to accept and not just be ready to give up your life but to do so with joy. When the Nazis killed Klaus Bonhoeffer, the execution was taken aback by Bonhoeffer, who thanked him with joy as they prepared his last moments. The executioner noted that it was as if Klaus knew that he was about to enter heaven and was very happy about it. If you are a Christian, have you been living in this perspective? 
If not, I suggest you meditate on the paradigm of the cross. Why? Because it removes all possible fear, doubt, and insecurity. It allows you to choose God's will without overthinking it, knowing that the truth of the gospel is that the worst-case scenario is the best-case outcome for us, God's children. And it provides the joy of truly giving to others as Christ gave his all for us. Go and live in that perspective today. And if you have not accepted the incredible sacrifice made for you, then I suggest you contemplate what he did for you. Read the crucifixion accounts in the Bible, because if you do, I am convinced that you will thank him for his sacrifice, asking Jesus to forgive you of all of those sins you unknowingly placed on him, and asking him to dwell inside of the cleaned out and healed portion of your heart today. And with that, go in grace, and may God keep you in his perfect peace. Thanks for listening to What the Cross Means to Me, devotional program heard every week here on KKXX Life Radio. If you'd like to view the image discussed in this week's essay, The Breakthrough, along with my other versepirations, then check out Magi Cross on Instagram. And if your church, youth group, or school would like to learn how to fundraise through the Magi Cross products, hear other cross podcasts, or read further meditative musings on the cross through my blog, then log on to magicross.com. That is M-A-J-I-C-R-O-S-S dot com.